National was heading for their landslide, and uh, Labour were trying to build up their capacity. Next minute, Winston, big time. So what I've never told you is that I had to tell a lie to keep my financial life under control. Your understanding of the legality of your campaign so far? Oh, we think it's um, pretty legal. I am not the first woman to multitask. Hey, do you want to, uh, Tasha, welcome to the 12th, 13th? I think it's the 13th. 13th episode. It's, so, some of you may be sad, probably not too sad, but we're only going to have three more episodes this season, so we're going to finish on the 15th episode. Uh, so we've got this week, we've got um, Tiano Tuiono, uh, who is speaking about being one of the leaders of the Māori Wards, pro-Māori Wards campaign during um, the five polls that have, have recently finished, which unfortunately all failed. Um, and then we've got we just recorded a father-son interview combination with uh, Marlon Drake who's the current president of Victoria University Wellington Students Association and his dad Murray who has worked in TVNZ for like ages yeah so we'll bring that to you next week and then the week after that we're final episode for a little while um, and it's going to be a special one we're going to like stream it on Facebook if, yeah so um, North Coast by-election night so we'll probably have that from about 7pm on the night because I think most of the results will come in uh, pretty quickly and um, so you'll either be able to watch it live or we'll put up the actual podcast later um, and if, if yeah. Labor's emails are anything to go by the polling is apparently close really I think I feel like media are trying to they always try and make it seem close um, which actually links into to our sort of what's the buzz section we were going to we talked about you know talking about the Irish referendum and the media like in the run up to this have been saying oh yeah it's going to be it's a close vote like there's lots of um, don't don't know and and like polling was showing no it wasn't wasn't it no No, that's a, that's exactly that's a, the the polling was like the polling was showing like massive majority to repeal, and and everyone's like, oh fuck, it's gonna be close, like it's gonna be real tight. Um, like there were no polls within like ten percentage points of uh, the repeal. So yeah, let's just ex- explain what's going on here. So um, for those that haven't been following the news, the uh, there's a referendum going on. They're counting the votes right now. We're recording this on Saturday night because we don't have anything better to do. Um, and so uh, this is to repeal the abortion being illegal uh, no so it's it's actually um, repealing the part of the constitution which stops um, an Irish parliament from making laws legalising abortion so this is just the first step. first step the first step is repealing this particular I think it's the 8th amendment or something like that um, and then parliament I read something today about like the Irish Parliament is going to pass a law to allow um, for an abortion to take place in the first twelve weeks, but they're only going to pass that law after the Pope's visit. So like they're they're, they're kind of like, uh, you know, this is this is really an important issue and that kind of thing, but we don't really want to fuck off the Pope too much, so we'll do it after the Pope's Pope's visit in August. The Pope's taking a relatively neutral stance is what I understand with this yeah they should just do it I mean people are 
having to having to go to fucking the United Kingdom. They're like people are dying mm. because of abortion being illegal in Ireland. They should be passing this straight away after the. Anyway, that's just. So anyway, the, the exit polling shows sixty eight percent in favour of repealing this to allow enable that to happen. So it's, you know we we don't have the final results of the referendum, but a pretty strong win for the yes campaign. It looks like. And um and great for for yeah. women in Ireland. And what what's been awesome if you've been following social media is that so many people coming home to vote. I think that's the hashtag home to vote. Um, and I even saw someone who ha- was on holiday in Bali and then like impromptu decided to leave their holiday in Bali to go all the way back to Ireland because you actually have to be in the country on the day to vote in that referendum, which is it seems insane to me that that's the case because even in countries where it's pretty restrictive about how you can vote, like the United States, they still allow overseas voting for like presidential elections and all that kind of stuff um and in new zealand we we're very open to people voting from overseas in in most situations yeah it's pretty silly and there's a couple of other interesting points on uh that in terms of the advertising that has been going on in this referendum google shut down all uh advertising in it altogether so no one could use google ads to um to you know, sway the vote, and this follows you know quite a lot of coverage of the influence of social media platforms and technology giants like Google and Facebook and the influence over elections in the US and the Brexit referendum and things like that. So what had been happening was a huge amount of money had been poured into this campaign from the likes of the United States, and so Google completely shut down all advertising on Facebook. So what uh, they had, the United States. Had- like or what Christian organisation or something have been trying to influence the Irish campaign yeah, oh, yeah. interesting and um, you know this is you know the same sort of thing that, that has been happening in, in elections with you know the likes of Russian money going into the US or in Brexit campaigns and stuff like yeah. that and, um, and Facebook took steps to restrict it such that you couldn't have any you, you know you had to be a domestic um, group that was placing the advertisements on it. So it'll be interesting to see in the you know ensuing weeks how how strong those protections were and whether or not they helped um, restrict the influence of the you know multinational influence over it. Um, but yeah. talking about referendums, there's been yeah. a bit of chat recently about a couple of referendums that may or may not be happening in the next couple of years. Well, one referendum is definitely going to happen on the legalising cannabis. It's a question of the timing. Of that, and then the end of life choices bill, which uh, David Seymour's thing that got a record number of submissions, thirty-five thousand. Um, that yeah. some talk that that might go to referendums. We well, yeah, New Zealand First in their coalition deal with Labour got um, agreement that there would be a conscience vote on an SOP that New Zealand First would put up to put it to a referendum. Um, so yeah, there's probably going to be two referendums. I, you know, I can't say much myself seeing as I'm working in Parliament at the moment, but in terms of one issue that I think is kind of that I find a little bit frustrating in the discussion around referendums is there's a lot of like language that people maybe find hard to understand. And one of the things that often gets discussed is whether it's a binding or a non-binding referendum. Um, Binding makes it sound as if, you know, 
no parliament can ever change it or or that kind of thing. But actually, what binding means in a New Zealand context, we don't have you know a supreme law necessarily. Like the vast majority of our law can get changed by parliament all the time, and so. Um, even with a binding referendum, a future parliament can just overturn the result. Um, basically, binding in the New Zealand context means that the referendum ex- es- itself is self-executing. That's a sort of Graham Hedgler actually uh, comment, but I'm going to steal that term because it's a good one because it, it basically means that the law that will change as a result of a yes vote for example is already set out in place and that vote comes into effect is triggered by the referendum itself the non-binding one is where you have a question um, and if there's a vote for the proposition, then po- politicians actually have to go away afterwards and sort out what that means and, and do all that work. So that's the kind of difference there. But some people, I don't know, it seems to be a little bit of confusion about that. But that's one of the questions around the cannabis referendum and I guess around the end-of-life choice, although I imagine the end-of-life choice bill will be binding um, because the, the law will already have already gone through Parliament, so it will just be like the commencement of the law will be... Um, conditional on a fifty percent vote, I imagine. So does that? So the referendum would happen after the third reading. Well, presu- yeah, I mean, uh, it would be. What could it happen? But you know, mid mid process. If it if it was to be a binding referendum, it would have to be um, after the third reading because the the supplementary order paper, the SOP, that would be inserted would only be legally. Um, enforced once it passes third reading and so um, yeah that won't be till later next year so yeah is, is there a way uh, I guess that is, is there a situation in which you could have a binding a, a law such as that that says the SOP in this um, means that this law this bill only comes into act if it passes a binding referendum yeah is there a situation so that, that if the referendum comes back and says no there isn't a majority support for it that parliament would parliament have to go through the full process the full legislative process or is there a way that can say actually no we're going to amend this little legislation to put it into force anyway I think they yeah, it depends on a few technicalities, but they would at least have to pass, at the very least, an amendment bill to the end-of-life choice bill, for example, to actually change it so that the commencement wasn't conditional on the vote right. It was, and, and instead remove that provision entirely, which would mean, unless you pass it through urgency or something, go through all those stages again. So yes, they would have to pass some legislation that would have to go through. Or they could write into the SOP that it's like, you know, this is conditional on the return of the referendum result to Parliament and a motion in the House to enact it or some random thing that could give them still some leeway with that. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't think... I've ever seen like a law required to like have a motion in Parliament to commence as a law. Like normally, it either commences like six months, you know, after the law is passed, or you know, sometimes they allow the government to decide when the law commences by 
you know, um, having a what's called an order in council that goes through to the Governor General who just signs it off and that doesn't even have to go through the parliamentary process. But we're getting into the nitty-gritty of parliamentary procedure here. And talking, um, about, talking about the nitty-gritty of parliamentary procedure, two people who love this are Graham Edgler and uh, a couple other people on Twitter. And this week they've been talking a lot about the critic issue that was happening down in Otago so those who have not well shout out Graham Mitchell quite a few times we should get him on the pod at some point we should, we should. Um, I think he's, he said he's in Ireland I think mm. at the moment and because he was talking about the abortion referendum and stuff but um, yeah, yeah, yeah that, that was that was in the bus so that was the um, the censorship of or you know alleged censorship of uh, Otago University against this student yeah. They got quite a lot of coverage but we'll, we'll have a quick chat in our interview with Marlon Drake um, Vice President uh, Anything else before we go on to our interview? You wanted to talk about like uh, talking about parliamentary procedure and stuff oh, there. Yes. That's what we were talking about. Yeah, so, question, so question question time last week. You would have you know you're probably all political nerds listening to this. You would have seen that there was a lot of. Um, shenanigans going on and things like that and I, I, I actually put this down to the end of a four week sitting period rather than anything else but oh, there's a lot of things question, that yeah my question was around like Mallard's practice of taking away and adding to the questions and there's some discussion there that you know like where does his power to do that come from and you had the answer to this in your after yeah so um the Speaker has discretion about how supplementary questions, so the questions that come after that primary question, you know, how those are um, determined and whether or not parties can use them and that kind of thing. Um, and a practice is developed of proportionally allocating um, it to, to the parties. And National uh, tried to pass a motion on Thursday for that practice to be enshrined and for like the Speaker not to be able to take questions off one side and take them to the other if there's misbehaving, which has been Mallard's practice as a way of kind of trying to keep discipline in the House. Um, but that motion didn't didn't pass so um, yeah it still remains the case that the um, in standing orders that supplementary questions are up at the discretion of the speaker but um, for those people who are keen there's a there's a standing orders review every parliamentary cycle and that'll kick underway probably next year something a year or so um, and maybe that'll be a big issue if it's still it, this uh, yeah. is quite a quite a nice convention that we've got in our framework that I learned about this week was that the review of the standing orders generally happens quite close before an election so it's passed before the people know who the, the new government yeah. is. And this is designed to do such that you design the this, this standing orders that is neutral or you know, benef- not beneficial for the government or the opposition um, in any way. So it's it's supposed nice. to all be done by consensus and stuff. It, it seems to also be the case that, I mean, the last two um, versions of the cabinet manual have actually both... So that's, you know, this sort of... Not the rule book of the government, rather than the standing orders being the rule book of Parliament. Slightly, slightly, this serves slightly different purposes. But um, the last two versions of the cabinet manual have both come out uh, in election years. You know, towards the end of first the Clark government in, in two thousand eight, and then um, then the key government, key so English government. So. Um, yeah, it creates a situation where uh, the previous parliamentary government are, are trying to pass laws, knowing that they might <laughs> might no longer um, be in, in power and might have the the other role. Um, but yeah, should we let's get uh, into this interview? Yeah, should we go into um, our interview with Tiano Tuiono? Yeah, talking about Mario. Kia ora, Tiano. Welcome to the show. 
Kiora, Kiora, Tina, Tina, Kwe, Tina Kuru, Tina Tina Tata Kato. Um, it's awesome to have you on the show. So, for those who don't know, Tiano Tiano um, is an education expert. Um, he also works for the UN on Indigenous issues, I believe, in Paris, and was a Green candidate at the last election. Um, have I missed anything there? Do you want to talk about yourself briefly? Yeah, yeah. So most of my work uh, works at the intersection of Indigenous people's rights and environmental issues. Um, so yeah, I've been working in and around the UN for about 20 years. Actually, I just come back from a biodiversity meeting, which was looking at biodiversity and judicial knowledge um, holders. Um, so folks from all around the Pacific came together to talk about one of the talk about how they can work in their local communities around um, Article 8J of the Convention on Biological Diversity, which focuses on indigenous knowledge. So here in, here in Aotearoa, that's Mātauranga Māori, so Māori knowledge, and how that can inform better, better, better conservation practice and um, that sort of thing. So how did you get into... Because I understand, Tiano, that you were leading the Māori wards campaign or one of the leaders of the Māori Ward campaign in Palmerston North in the Manawatu uh, area and yeah how did you get into that issue why is it an important issue for you? Um, well usual thing with a lot of these political issues you show up to a meeting and someone throws a job at you um, <laughs> so I, I, I went along to the hui and there were a couple of other Māori there and they were like it was kind of like rock paper and scissors who was going to go on the committee I obviously lost and ended up on ended up on the committee but my role there was supporting a lot of the work that Alicia, Alicia Rutherford was doing she was the main councillor who was uh, coordinating and and uh, coordinating uh, better Māori representation on the council in support with, you know, uh, our Green Councillor, uh, Brent Barrett and Laura Johnson and a whole lot of um, good councillors. Here, here in Palmerston North, we had 11 out of the 15 councillors supporting uh, Māori wards. You know, they saw it for what it was. Um, you know, in order to get better outcomes for everybody, we need to have Māori around the council, the council table. So the mayor was in support and the deputy mayor was in support. Um, it wasn't seen as a left or right issue at all. Uh, so people, you know, here, that people that were in the know just, just knew, look, we need to get on with it. There's things that need to be dealt with in local government act and also the resource management act and all the other kind of associated bits of local government legislation. So this was the opportunity to do that. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. And so, I mean, as we talked about in the past, um, in the last episode, unfortunately, despite having, you know, strong support from all the councillors around the country where these votes were happening, uh, none of the polls came out in favour, which I think was a real shame. Um, what was the dynamics like in Palmerston North in that campaign? Uh, the, I mean, that, that, I mean, of a, I mean there's, a, there's so much things that need to, so many things that need to be impacted. Like we were always on on the back foot, um, basically because you are pushing back against ignorance. Uh, and uh, I'll give you, I'll give you the clear example. Like I was just down at the football field with, uh, you know, because my my kids play football, and I was talking with one of the other one of the other parents. Uh, he's a painter, works for a painting decorating company, and they paint buildings and that sort of thing. And he was saying, oh, you know, I was just um, uh, just talking to one of my uh, Pākehā work colleagues, workmates, and I says to him, you know, what did you vote? And he said, oh, I voted, uh, I voted uh, against the Māori wards because of uh, racism. And then his Pākehā colleague says, well, how did you, how did you, um, how did you vote? And he goes, oh, I voted for the Māori wards because of uh, racism. So you had these two, two people who voted 
differently, but for exactly the same reason. And, you know, when you've got one bunch who are clearly in the minority, it's never, never going to turn out right. And that, this is, I think, the, the problem that we're facing, not just in Māori wards, but also Māori issues and treaty issues in general. Um, people don't know basic things, like what is racism? You know, they would equate like the, um, uh, uh, equate with uh, recognising and supporting treaty rights as apartheid. Seriously, this is something that throws around. But people that know what apartheid was, where it was a small white minority holding power over a large black minority, this is not what treaty rights is about. They are completely different and distinct things. What is race? That's another thing. People don't know what that is. As well, and then, um, and then, of course, you you back up if you back that up with a whole lot of um, lack of knowledge. I think around basic history, and then you get an alt right group like Holtson's Pledge coming in with thousands, tens of thousands of dollars, as it was here in Palmerston North. You know, it's a recipe for disaster for democracy. I think. How, you mentioned Hobson's Pledge, um, so they're kind of. <laughs> They seem to be led by Don Brash, but they've got a bunch of other people involved. How did they manifest themselves on the ground? Was it, did it feel like a grassroots campaign or were there actually people like who came in from out of town or money was funneled in from out of town or something like that? How- uh, we, had, we had one debate with them and, um, you know, because we wanted to like separate ourselves from them and not make it so negative and that sort of thing. So the guy that was their main guy, he was a guy called Don Esselman. He was this white South, South African guy here who migrated during the height of apartheid. So in his view, Māori, he, he, like, so this is the way that the boat opened. So within the first 10 seconds when the Massey University staff got up, a whole debate with the mihi, he walked out of the room because he found Māori, you know, te reo Māori offensive. He didn't want to listen to it. So he walked out and told everybody why he was working out, walking out. So this is the opening of the debate. Um, he also happens to be a climate change denier, so you know, the best of both worlds there as well. Um, and next to him was a guy called Mike Butler, and you can Google how fantastic that guy is. But he, that guy deals in alternative histories, conspiracy theorists, like who were here first before the Maldives and this kind of thing. So when you have people that aren't actually dealing with facts and actually dealing with uh, deep ingrained divisions within uh, different groups of society um, you, you know you, it's really hard to have a have a logical conversation you know given the historical prejudice that uh, that Maori face um, in, in this country and so that I mean there's a lot of hurt that's been going on for centuries now how's the feeling amongst the campaigners a week a week after this vote um, dis- disappointed, definitely disappointed. I think you know I'm from one of those. Uh, I'm from one of the Maori-speaking communities here in Palmerston North, and folks tend to be insular, inward-looking in our community because um, local local government and lo- and you know that sort of thing is not seen to be representative of us. And this has just proven proven that. So I think it will discourage Māori from participating in, in, in local politics even more so, knowing that we are not welcome at the, at the table. Yeah. And it's, it's a small community as well. Um, out here in the, uh, out, like, for example, where I live, there's two rural, um, there's two rural wards. Um, and so, you know, you, your, your listeners probably know that you can establish a rural ward, but you actually can't petition or put a referendum on a rural ward. But if it's a Māori ward, then you can. And so a lot of Māori people think, when they think rural ward, they look at, well, who lives in the rural wards? Well, it's white farmers. White farmers are the dominant voices in these rural wards. 
So if you look at it from a lot of our community's perspective, it's like, well, it's okay for them to make space for white farmers, but not actually allow us to put a referendum on them. But when it comes to us having a say at that table, next thing you know, they're chucking everything at us, including the kitchen sink, to keep us out of um, uh, keep us off out of the council room. So I, I see it. I see this result as being very negative, and um, I think uh, Maori will be even more reluctant to participate. You talk quite passionately about, I guess, the need for education and, and history and that kind of thing. I think one thing about specifically about the wards, and, and it relates to the Māori seats as well, is that I see a lot of people who think that if you're um, Māori, that you sort of get double the vote of everyone else or something like that, and don't realise that Māori wards and Māori seats are just um, a different way of organising electorate. Um, yeah. Totally. And everyone still just gets the same number of votes and all that kind of stuff. It just allows communities of interest, in this case, um, Tangana Whenua, to organise themselves in a way that ensures some representation. So, yeah. Do you, do you find that that's an issue about understanding what might... Well, I, and I, I mean, I, I understand it to be true, and everybody that reads understands it to be true, but most people don't read. <laughs> they don't understand. They just... And they don't want to understand. There's a willful ignorance out there. Um, they'll uh, and and, uh, and I, I think groups like, well, I definitely know that groups like Hobson's Pledge really exacerbate that. They really amplify that perspective because uh, here's the thing. You know, we are talking about facts, but they do not use facts. That's the thing. Like when we were at the debate, he was pulling up this thing called the Littlewood Treaty, which is a conspiracy theory. It was. Uh, you know, because treaties, of course, if you understand treaties, need to actually have signatures on them, but this one doesn't. And so they push all these alternative facts and post-truths. You know, it's very Trump-like in the way that they push things, you know. So you and I could debate facts and, of course, be correct and true, but they are not using facts. They're using pure emotion, and particularly there are types of emotion which so which seeds of, you know, of distrust and dissent and division. This is what Hobson's Pledge is about. So there's obviously a, a lot of negative stuff coming out of this, these five polls. Um, is, is there a positive to, to be drawn in the fact that five councils, you know, have voted by majorities to set up these Māori wards in the, in the first place? And it shows at least a majority of councillors in these places um, keenness to, uh, you know, get better Māori representation at a local government level. Yeah, no, definitely. That, that, is the, that is the silver line. Like I was saying here in Palmerston North, it was 11 out of the 15, including the mayor and the deputy mayor. You know, they went through all the submissions and stuff like that and, uh, uh, you know, and clearly saw that you should not have majorities deciding stuff for minorities because it never works out well. Mm-hmm. You know, that was, one, that was one thing that was clearly, clearly articulated as well. Um, so I think definitely there is a silver lining, but I think there is something under all of this which we really need to take uh, attention to as a, as a society. I mean, look, if, we want, if we're going to have uh, useful discussions about race relations and about treaty rights and this sort of thing, we need to have a common understanding about what the facts are. And um, so one of the issues while I was going back to that debate we had as well is we had this guy um, from Hobson's Pledge who, you know, is a conspiracy theorist, doesn't use facts and, make, and actually has written a lot of books. But when you look at the people that write them, none of them have expertise in this area. And so the really ironic thing was for me was while we were having this debate, we had this guy who 
according to their website, as a property manager and whatever. But in the audience, we had people like Professor Mahana Jury. You had Veronica Tafai, who's been lecturing in treaty issues for years and years and years. Dr. Farah Palmer. There were like a lot of PhDs in that room, people that actually specialise in this sort of thing. And yet, attention was given to this particular guy. Um, and and this is this is also what the problem the problem with also with um, with mainstream media they always put Don Brash up to talk about race relations the guy has no experience in that he was the governor of the Reserve Bank who goes to a plumber and tries to get their opinion on rocket science no one does that I mean you know what I'm saying it's I'm it's, it's insane yeah I'm interested Tiana in your thoughts because for me it seems strange how Don Brash. You know, he, he's almost wanting his legacy to be about um, uh, criticizing Titiniti and, and, and trying to get rid of Māori seats and Māori wards and stuff. For someone who focused most of his career on bank government and on neoliberal economic policies, he was willing to sort of back New Zealand first, who are quite nationalistic and against his economic policies, and just because he seems to be focusing so much on Māori issues at the moment. It seems strange. It's very strange, I, and I think it's um, yeah, yeah. I mean, what did they put into that last election? Quarter of a million dollars, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, here, when we questioned them about oh, how much you're putting in here, we put in three thousand dollars, around about three thousand dollars in the Palmerston North. We fundraised that from the community, and also three thousand dollars in the Manawatu District Council. So our campaign had just straddled two two groups. These guys had like bus people in. They had like he he said they had put tens of thousands of dollars into part just into Palmerston North, so that was just what they admitted. But we know that they had gone around and hired people to talk, you know, to hand out their pamphlets and that sort of thing. They had mainstream adverts on like More FM and stuff like that, whole half page, half page newspaper adverts and stuff like that. I mean, it's 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 in a way like uh, I find it quite obscene with how obsessed they are with Maori. Um, yeah, and I, and I say that, and I say that, I was like, wow, these guys are so obsessed with things Māori, and I'm a Māori, and I'm not that obsessed with, <laughs> as obsessed with as they are. It's crazy. And I think it's really unhealthy. I think there's a really unhealthy vibe with those guys. Yeah. What, are they, what are they worried about? I mean, I, yeah. I don't know, man, but that's a lot of money. And if you, if you go to their website, if you have the misfortune of going onto their website, it's all of their campaigns have an anti-Māori thing to it. It's yeah. just... Yeah, I think if they, what about child poverty? Why can't they tackle child poverty or something, you know, something worthwhile? Yeah. And so, I mean, you talked there, I mean, I think there's several several things around, you know, like these these polls we've done, there's no regulations around how much you can spend in, in influencing these sort of polls, unlike general elections or other stuff. I guess yeah. a more fundamental point, like we talked about the discriminatory nature of the, poll to have a Māori ward. So I guess, like, what, what do you see as the next steps in terms of doing that? Should we just be focusing on abolishing that um, discriminatory step or should we go further to enhance Māori representation at a local level? Uh, I, I think if we... Uh, I mean, most local... Like, clearly, these five local government... Uh, these these councils saw, saw the benefits of having Māori representation around, around the table. Um, and so I support uh, Marama's private members bill to sort of get rid of that. That, uh, that really, what I what I see is racially discriminatory um, legislation. Um, so if that if that falls out, then you know that will solve this issue. Um, I mean, it, it only became an issue because Hobson's pledge made it an issue, and then poured tens of thousands of dollars into each district to make it an issue. 
Um, and it, so it's, I, I find it disconcerting that outside, outside, outside groups can come into a, uh, a local town and cause dissent and then just disappear and we'll never see them again. And I think it also says something of the people that support that sort of behaviour, that they will support outsiders from outside of our towns and outside of our districts before the people that actually live here, you know? So yeah. thanks for putting all the mahi into the campaign. What's, what's next to you? Going to lay low a bit on politics for a little while? Have you got other sort of campaigns coming up? Uh, I, you know, with this thing, I think it's I think it's related to a whole lot of things that I, I've been uh, uh, that I've been thinking about for a while. Um, I think we do need to have a conversation about about race, um, and I think, but we need to be a bit more uh, articulate about what that is. So, for example, you know, we had that really great campaign about say nothing against say nothing to racism or whatever it was coming out of the Human Rights Commission, which I think was good. But we need to go a bit deeper in terms of looking at our, uh, you know, the, you know, race, institutionalized racism and actually like basic historical facts and finding narratives which will resonate with the, you know, the, with this core group of people within Parker society who uh, struggle with actually trying to understand the views of other people, you know, so, and, I, and I'm thinking about the, you know, the painter guy I was telling you about who, who, who felt that by by recognising and supporting treaty rights, that was a form of apartheid. Just, of course, crazy. Um, yeah. You know that, I know that, and everybody that's involved in politics that knows that. But there's a significant portion of Pākehā, of our, of our Pākehā community who don't know that or don't see that. And I saw that at, at these debates as well. Some of them have never really thought about the Treaty of Waitangi, never thought about what it meant, actually understood what race is and racism is and what it isn't. You know, how, and they just see if you treat people differently, well, then that's, that's, that creates some sort of racism. But we know that to be not true because racism is actually dependent on power, power that one group, one group might have over another. And so having to have that kind of discussion, um, I've, uh, I think is a healthy thing and we need to be having it as, not only as a community, as a society, but actually people living here. Yeah. Thank so I'd be, yeah, I'd be into a stronger campaign, actually. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, one cheeky last little question is: Are you going to be running again for parliament uh, in twenty twenty? Oh, it's definitely on the books. You know. Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. I, I, I am planning to. Right. Fantastic. Good luck with that. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Cool. Okay. Kia ora. Kia ora. So yeah, fascinating interview with Tiana. Yeah, um, yeah, it would be great to see him running in Parliament, um, and glad that he is. Ralph's unbiased. <laughs> uh, and I think, I mean, raised a lot of important questions there around what we need to do to improve broader understanding in this country. Yeah. Um, so coming up next week, we talked as we talked about before. We've got Marlon uh, and his dad Murray talking about student politics and the evolution of media over the years. Quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, and um, 
you know, obviously put in your diaries the Northcote by-election 7pm coverage. I I know that in previous by-elections, you know, our, our competitors, obviously our you know, <laughs> direct competitors, uh, TV1 and, and 3 have had by-election specials, but they don't have them until like the end of the night, like 9 or 9.30. But by that point, the results, click, like most of the results are going to come out between 7 and 7.30 because what happens these days in New Zealand is that there's so many people who can vote in advance and those those votes get counted on the day that all the like juicy stuff comes out in the first half an hour so we'll be right there with you refreshing the electoral commission website and um talking you through what's going on and and, and hopefully people will ask us questions as well there'll be a like you know and facebook live stream where you can ask us questions and if you want to uh really up the ante with with our cutting edge coverage of this you can donate um, to our press Patreon that we've got set up at firstpastthepod.com. We do this all voluntary um, out of our own pockets. So, you know, if we raise enough money, we might even fly up to Northcote and have some in real life coverage on the ground. So head to firstpastthepod.com, support us there. Yeah, well, and we'll be showing it on our Facebook page. So like the Facebook page, etc. cetera. Um, and yeah. Tell your friends and family. Yeah, yeah, and you know, now that we've, we're going to come up to the end of our first season, you you know, hopefully, people will be listening to the back catalogue and and um, getting pumped up for for a second season as well. So, um, but for now, um, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you for the next few weeks. Kaikite. Kaikite, ano.